You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With his wife, Marina, so near the end of term and ready to deliver their second child, it was determined she should continue to stay with the pains, while Oswald moved into a room at a boarding house, closer to downtown Dallas, where he was searching for work. It worked out well when Oswald, who couldn't drive and had no vehicle, got the job at the book depository, as it was just a two-mile bus ride from his boarding house. On some weekends, he caught a ride the 27 miles to the Payne's house to be with Marina. He caught that ride with his new co-worker at the depository, Buell Frazier, the brother of Ruth Payne's friend, through whom she had first gotten the lead on the job at the depository. Marina gave birth to their second daughter in late October, and Oswald saw them at the end of most weeks otherwise settling into his new job at the Texas School Book Depository, where he was known to sit by himself in the lunchroom and read the day-old newspapers. Later the next month, some of these newspapers contained an announcement that President Kennedy's motorcade would be passing right through Dealey Plaza, smack in front of the Texas School Book Depository. Some conspiracy speculators charged that the motorcade's route was changed in order to give Oswald his shot at Kennedy, but there's no evidence for this beyond one newspaper misreporting the route, showing a different one that would also have provided a clear shot at Kennedy from the depository. Regardless of what newspaper Oswald may have read the news in, it's clear that he did read it and began to hatch a plan, seeing a far more massive opportunity to change history than that which he had attempted to seize in firing his rifle at General Walker. What makes it clear is his behavior during the few days between the news releasing and the day of the assassination. On Thursday, the 21st, the day before Kennedy's arrival, the notoriously stingy Oswald splurged on a big breakfast, and at work, he asked Buell Frazier to give him a ride to the Payne's house, an unusual request for a Thursday. He explained it away by saying he needed to fetch some curtain rods from their house for his room at the boarding house, something that his furnished room already had. Sometime before leaving with Fraser, probably using materials present at work, he crafted a long sack by taping together pieces of paper. Marina was surprised to see him that Thursday. He usually called ahead, and he was acting somewhat desperate, trying to kiss her and being more affectionate than usual, saying he missed her and 
that he, quote, wanted to make peace, end quote, with her. Marina brought up the president's visit, thinking Oswald would relish the opportunity to expound on politics, as he usually did. But Oswald refused to talk about it, claiming he knew nothing about Kennedy's visit and remaining quiet through dinner. At some point, Ruth Payne recalled that he had gone out to their garage, where he had stored a bundle that the Paynes thought was camping equipment, wrapped up and leaning against a wall, but which Marina knew was his Manlicher Carcano rifle. When he left to go back to work the next morning, November 22nd, he left almost his entire savings, $170, on the dresser for Marina, telling her to take as much as she needed and to, quote, buy everything, end quote. He also left his wedding ring behind. He walked to Buell Frazier's house carrying a long, taped-up brown paper parcel, placing it in the back seat of Buell's car, and then simply staring at Buell's sister in the window to indicate his readiness to leave. It struck her as unusual. When Buell came out and asked what was in the back seat, Oswald said it was the curtain rods he had mentioned previously. Some have tried to claim that Frazier and his sister's estimation of the length of the package shows that it couldn't have been Oswald's rifle, even disassembled. However, curtain rods were never found inside the book depository, but the Manlicher Carcano was hidden between boxes near a stairwell. Moreover, the package they saw him with that morning, made of brown paper and tape of the kind found in the depository, and which Buell saw him take into the depository that day, was the same as an improvised paper bag that would later be found at what appeared to be a sniper's nest. On the sixth floor of the depository, which was under construction and almost entirely empty at the time of Kennedy's arrival because employees had taken their lunch and gone out to watch the passing motorcade, stacks of books had been moved to create a little hiding place by the southeast corner's window, obscuring anyone's view of someone standing in that corner looking down on Dealey Plaza. In that makeshift alcove, crime scene investigators found a palm print and a right index fingerprint on boxes, later identified as matching Oswald's prints. Inside that improvised paper bag found in the sniper's nest were fibers that matched the blanket that Oswald had kept his rifle in before taking it from the Payne's garage. And silver nitrate tests would later reveal Oswald's palm and fingerprints on that bag as well. Along with this evidence were three rifle shells that would later be conclusively proven to have been fired by the Manlicher Carcano abandoned elsewhere in the building. That Manlicher Carcano was confirmed to be the same rifle Oswald held in the famous backyard photos, as mentioned in part one. But more than this, a palm print matching Oswald's was lifted from the stock by Dallas police, and partial fingerprints found on the trigger guard would eventually, through photo enhancements, reveal 18 matching points, convincingly identifying them as having been left by Lee Harvey Oswald's right ring and middle fingers. This evidence alone, from the testimony of Frazier and his sister, the Paynes and Marina, as well as concrete evidence afterward documented by Dallas police, appears conclusive. But those who believe in a conspiracy to murder Kennedy have been determined through the years to make this a far more complicated puzzle than it actually is. As the author of one of my principal sources, Vincent Bugliosi, told the Los Angeles Times, quote, because of these conspiracy theorists who split hairs and proceeded to split the split hairs, 
this case has been transformed into the most complex murder case in world history. But at its core, it's a simple case, end quote. This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and though this case may be simple at its heart and should be settled beyond reasonable doubt, I nevertheless must continue to wade through a swamp of false witnesses and conspiracist lies just to reprove what has been demonstrated time and time again. That's what this entire series is, a reproof in two senses of the word. Thanks for joining me for Oswald and the JFK Assassination, Part 3, The Lone Gunman. Before we continue, I want to say goodbye to several more patrons who've deleted pledges. Sorry to see you go. Not sure if you're still listening. But I also want to warmly thank my newest patrons, James, and some generous new partner patrons, Jonathan and Joshua. Also, big thanks to Isabella for renewing her partner pledge, and to Grant, Michael, and Antonios for generously raising their pledge amounts. Further thanks to one-time donors, like the aforementioned Jonathan, on Venmo. I got the donation, thanks Jonathan. And Dennis on the website. And Peter on PayPal. I really appreciate all this patron support, especially when I seem to be losing some patronage. Listeners who pledge on Patreon.com slash Historical Blindness get an exclusive RSS link that will set up an ad-free feed of the show, with teasers and exclusive episodes, usually at least one Minnesota month, but sometimes more. For example, after part one of this series, I released an exclusive episode about KGB defector Yuri Nosenko. And after part two, I released one refuting conspiracist claims about the controversial George DeMorenschild. And I'm already planning another Minnesota for release after this episode. After this episode, all about Kennedy's treatment at Parkland Hospital and claims about his wounds and statements inconsistent with his autopsy. So before thinking I've overlooked something, you'll need to pledge support to hear everything I address in this series. Patron feeds also get episodes early, and their episodes are not interrupted by advertisements. Not even by this Patreon pitch. So visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and support the show. Or you can support the show by making a one-time donation at historicalblindness.com slash donate, or at the PayPal link in the show notes, or on Venmo at historicalblindness. Now, on with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. Hearing the evidence laid out in the cold open should be convincing, damning even. But if you have invested your belief in any of the many long-standing conspiracy theories surrounding this case, perhaps because you read a conspiracist book or two, or because you watched the Oliver Stone film JFK, or simply because you have heard too many friends or family members regale you with their second-hand regurgitations of conspiracist reservations, then I'm sure you are already formulating objections. Fingerprint evidence can't be trusted, you might protest. Or, if it was Oswald's rifle, then of course it would have his prints on it. Notwithstanding the witness testimony that entirely details his efforts to retrieve the rifle himself and smuggle it into the depository after the newspaper announcements of Kennedy's motorcade route, 
those who want to believe Oswald was a patsy will contend that someone planted the rifle and the shells. Even though there's no evidence of anyone else entering the Payne's home and having the chance to fetch the rifle from their garage. Also, a complete frame job, I suppose, would entail knowing which boxes Oswald had recently touched on the sixth floor, so that when they built the sniper's nest, they could use boxes that had his palm prints on them. And since no mysterious strangers were witnessed by the many book depository employees that day, it would mean the conspiracy would have to be composed of other employees there. A more feasible conspiracy claim is that Oswald did fire his Manlicker Carcano, but that he was not the only shooter that day. That the supposed conspirators allowed him to take his shots, but took shots of their own as well to ensure the job was done. This notion, that there were other shooters present within the book depository or on the patch of grass between a parking lot and a fence along Elm Street near the railroad pass, the so-called grassy knoll, or elsewhere, has become the central thesis of nearly every conspiracy claim surrounding the JFK assassination. According to these narratives, Oswald may have been a shooter, but he was not the shooter. It's these claims that we must examine in order to achieve a clear picture of what happened on that chaotic day. But first, let us take a moment to imagine and remember the historic and tragic moment with something approaching respect and sympathy for a beloved life that was lost. At 12.30 p.m. on November 22, 1963, the presidential motorcade turned from Main Street onto Houston Street to much fanfare. Crowds lined the street, cheering as John F. Kennedy and his wife Jackie waved. In the convertible limousine's fold-down jump seats sat Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife, also waving to the crowds. In the front seat, driving and riding shotgun, were two Secret Service agents. Kennedy himself had chosen to do away with the plastic bubble top that might have saved his life that day, preferring to have nothing between himself and the gathered people. As usual, all was not as it may have seemed with the president, who presented a public image of great vigor despite personal health struggles. Under his suit, he wore a back brace strapped against his body with ace bandage. Despite any pain or discomfort, though, he also wore a smile as he passed through Dealey Plaza toward the Texas School Book Depository. He had a nice luncheon to look forward to, roast beef. When the first shot rang out, many thought it was a vehicle backfiring, or maybe a firework. But the following shots and the terrible commotion inside the president's vehicle made it very apparent what was happening. Dealey Plaza exploded into panic and pandemonium. Screams of terror and anger, shouts of confusion filling the air, ringing through the plaza's strange acoustics and echoing like gunshots, even today. Among the claims made to support the idea that Oswald could not have committed this heinous act alone are the claims that he was not a good enough marksman 
or that his rifle was not accurate enough, or that its bolt action could not possibly be operated fast enough. It is odd that conspiracist authors have decided Oswald was a terrible marksman when he actually qualified as a sharpshooter with the Marines. The superior officers in charge of the marksmanship branch and Oswald's training, who actually have some idea of Oswald's skill with the rifle, Sergeant James Zom and Major Eugene Anderson, have gone on record as saying Oswald was a fully capable marksman. And more than that, that the shots taken from the depository were not especially difficult, that it was, in fact, quote, an easy shot for a man with the equipment he had and his ability, end quote. A Marine who served with Oswald, Nelson Delgado, is sometimes quoted as remembering Oswald not hitting his targets. But Delgado didn't serve with him at the time when he received his marksmanship training and therefore was not an authority on his abilities, as were the officers who trained him. Another tale has it that Oswald came up empty-handed on a rabbit hunting trip in Russia. But of course, hunting rabbit is far different than taking a pot shot at a man in a slow-moving convertible. And Oswald's brother Robert remembered Oswald complaining about that hunting trip, saying his rifle's firing pin had broken. Robert himself had been hunting with Lee more than once and has stated, quote, he was a good shot, end quote. So that leaves his equipment, the Manlicher Carcano rifle, which conspiracist authors allege is universally condemned as slow and inaccurate and a terrible choice for sharpshooting. Certainly, it may not have been the absolute best choice, but Oswald chose it because it was the right price. He clipped a coupon from the magazine American Rifleman to buy it. As for Oswald's particular Manlicher Carcano, when the FBI conducted shooting tests with it, they found it, quote, very accurate, end quote. It had come with a four-power telescopic scope already assembled, easily seen in the backyard photos. And the FBI firearms expert who examined it stated that it required hardly any adjustment within the range of the assassination shots, and that such a scope would allow even an untrained marksman to operate the weapon like a sharpshooter. And it was further determined that the rifle had little kickback, which would aid in maintaining aim after firing and rapidly working the bolt action to reload. The false claims about Oswald's rifle seem to have no end. It's been claimed that it had a quote-unquote hair trigger that would have made sharpshooting difficult, but it was determined that its trigger needed three pounds of pressure, a full two pounds more than anything considered a hair trigger. Some have even claimed that Oswald could not have used it properly because it was set up for a left-handed person, but the $7 scope on Oswald's rifle would be used exactly the same way by a lefty or a right-handed person. That only leaves the claim that Oswald could not work its bolt action quickly enough to fire off the shots. Three shells were found in the sniper's nest on the sixth floor of the book depository. According to the Warren Commission, the three shots had been fired in just about five to five and a half seconds. And during the FBI's testing of the weapon, they determined that it took two and a quarter seconds to work the bolt action and take aim, which meant firing all three shots seemed impossible. However, it has been proven more than once that it is possible. A 1975 CBS documentary recorded the efforts of 11 marksmen 
to fire three bullets from a similar weapon at a moving target, and some were able to fire all three shots in only 4.1 seconds and still hit their marks. The House Select Committee a couple years later also conducted such tests, and as a result, they lowered the minimum time to fire three good shots from the Manlicher Carcano to less than three and a half seconds. And it must be kept in mind that, according to Marina, Oswald obsessively practiced the bolt action on his rifle, such that he must have been expert at working it. Regardless, though, there is good reason to believe that Oswald took well more than five seconds to fire his three shots. You see, the entire basis of the five-second time frame is based on the Zapruder film, the 8mm home movie filmed by a local dressmaker. The Warren Commission worked under the assumption that the first shot fired must have hit since Oswald must have had the time to aim carefully with that shot. In the film, Kennedy and the governor seem fine, then Zapruder's view of them is obscured by a sign, and afterward they appear to be reacting to their gunshot wounds. Knowing that Kennedy must have first been struck while he was passing the sign, and further knowing that for a few moments as he approached the sign until a certain point while passing behind the sign, he must have been obscured from the sniper's view by a certain oak tree, it was determined that the first shot must have been fired just after emerging from the foliage, and while obscured momentarily from Zapruder's camera, at frame 210 of the Zapruder film. Knowing from the consensus of eyewitness testimony that the headshot, which can clearly be seen on the film, was the final shot, this allowed them to determine that the three shots had been fired in five to five and a half seconds. One of these bullets struck Kennedy in the back, exiting his neck, and further injuring Governor Connolly. The bullet believed to have caused these injuries was later discovered intact in Connolly's hospital gurney. The final bullet entered the back of Kennedy's skull and created a massive exit wound on the right side of his head. The problem with the Warren Commission's timeline is that they presumed the first bullet hit Kennedy in the back and the second bullet missed and the third hit his head. However, there is strong evidence to suggest that Oswald's first shot, the shot many witnesses believed was a backfire, was taken before Kennedy passed behind the oak tree's foliage, and that this was the shot that missed, making the second and third taken after he emerged the only two that hit. This would make sense. One can imagine Oswald aiming and then taking a hurried shot before Kennedy went out of sight behind the foliage. Governor Connolly, who survived, always insisted that the first shot, which he had heard, had not been the one that struck him. Multiple witnesses describe hearing the first shot just as their car turned from Houston onto Elm in front of the depository and passed behind the oak tree there. Oswald's acquaintance, Buell Frazier, on the depository steps heard it that way, as did a witness half a block away and another standing on the corner of Houston and Elm as Kennedy's limo made its turn. Up on the railroad overpass, another witness described the first shot coming as the corner was taken. And even the president's own driver and another Secret Service agent remembered it that way. In fact, some witnesses even report having seen sparks as a missed shot struck the pavement. One man even had minor injuries, likely from chips of concrete striking his face. Nobel Prize winning physicist Luis Alvarez 
about whom I had occasion to speak when talking about his hypothesis regarding the mass extinction of dinosaurs way back in my episode on the Chicxulub Crater, suggested that evidence of a first missed shot could be discerned through quote-unquote jiggle analysis of the Zapruder film, that is, examining the film for blurs caused by Zapruder jerking when the first shot startled him. Sure enough, a significant jiggle was detected at the moment when Oswald would have been about to lose his shot because of the obscuring foliage as the president's limo completed its turn. If, as this evidence suggests, this was the first of the three shots, then Oswald would have had something more like eight whole seconds to fire the three rounds. Now for a brief intermission. What did Argentinian legend Diego Maradona have to do with labor history in the city of Chicago? What connects a prize for children's literature to the earliest pre-dawn days of baseball? Why was the quote-unquote father of boxing so very good at sword fighting? On the new podcast, The History of Sport, Stories from Outside the Lines, I explore these questions on the show where sports and history come together. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar? And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. 
We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Then there are those conspiracists who claim there were more than three shots. For writers who push the idea that shooters other than Oswald were present on Dealey Plaza, such as on the grassy knoll, it is imperative to suggest more than three shots were heard, or that they were heard from directions other than the book depository. The 200 or so witness statements that speculate on the origin of shots are sometimes given as a percentage, to the effect that some startlingly high percentage of the witnesses believed the shots came from the grassy knoll rather than the book depository. But conspiracist authors such as Josiah Thompson in Six Seconds in Dallas have been caught falsifying the numbers and misrepresenting the testimony. The fact is that 88% of the witnesses heard exactly three shots, and only 5% claimed they heard more. Likewise, the largest portion of the witnesses 44% could not determine where the shots came from, and of those who believed they could, most, 28%, identified the book depository, with only 12% suggesting the grassy knoll, and only a measly 2% saying they heard gunshots from multiple directions. That last bit is important. Hardly anyone claimed they heard shots from more than one direction. So that means those who heard shots originating from a different direction than the book depository, from which we know three shots had been fired, were likely just confused by the acoustics of the plaza, which are known to make pinpointing the location of a sound difficult. Numerous witnesses even specifically mentioned being confused by echo patterns and admitting to uncertainty because of them. These acoustics could easily explain the few witness statements about a fourth or fifth shot as well. But the most confusion regarding number of shots was created by the House Select Committee in 1979 when they obsessed over a recording from Dallas police channels, apparently captured from a motorcycle officer's radio whose microphone was stuck on and capturing constant audio. The thing is, they didn't know whose mic it was or if it was even at Dealey Plaza that day. No gunshots were heard on the staticky recording, but they had experts pick it apart for inaudible sounds. A first set of experts said they found quote-unquote impulses that may have been gunshots. And after attempting to recreate the impulses by firing two rifles on Dealey Plaza from the depository and the grassy knoll, recording it, and then comparing these impulses they suggested that the recording had been on or near Dealey Plaza and recorded four shots. Their certainty was 50%. But then, just as the committee had been ready to deliver its conclusions, a second pair of experts they consulted claimed it was as high as 95%. Then, a Dallas policeman who had been accompanying the motorcade offered the dubious statement that 
sometimes his mic gets stuck, and that clenched it for them. The House Select Committee on Assassinations, which had been moving inexorably toward a finding that Oswald acted alone, changed their conclusion to declare that JFK was, quote, probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy, end quote, all based on that mysterious recording. Conspiracy lovers just about did backflips, of course, but they were less excited when the officer afterward listened to the recording and said it couldn't be his mic because no sirens were heard when he accompanied the motorcade to Parkland Hospital. And the entire farce of the police channel recording would be revealed within a few years when National Academy of Sciences experts made out some crosstalk on the police channel recording that was known to have been spoken by a sheriff one minute after the assassination. So, the audio evidence of four shots that swayed the committee in favor of a conspiracy on which no gunshots or sirens could actually be heard and which might not have even been a recording of audio at Dealey Plaza had actually been recorded after the time in question, making the supposed quote-unquote impulse patterns observed by audio experts nothing but further crackling among the static. Some eyewitnesses claimed they saw multiple shooters in the depository that day, but their testimony has been discredited. For example, a prisoner in the Dallas County Jail claimed he was able to see two men in the sniper's nest, but he was considered unreliable, not only because of his multiple arrests for behavior displaying mental instability, but also because the FBI determined one could not actually see the depository from his cell. Other witnesses claimed to see multiple gunmen in windows other than the one around which the sniper's nest had been made, or on different floors, but their testimony is invariably inconsistent, not matching established facts or even statements they made themselves in the immediate aftermath, and more than once was contradicted by people they had been with who didn't see the same thing and also indicated that the witnesses never mentioned seeing such things at the time. On the other hand, a great deal of consistent eyewitness testimony describes a lone man fitting Oswald's description in the sixth floor window that had been turned into a sniper's nest, even seeing the stacks of boxes behind him and seeing the rifle in his hands. A Dallas Times-Herald photographer and another cameraman who were both in the same motorcade vehicle witnessed this. A court clerk across the street pinpointed the window as well said as much to his friend and then directed a deputy sheriff to search there. A student on the street below looked up after the first shot and saw the barrel extended from the window, and then he saw the muzzle flare when it fired again. A 15-year-old boy who had been lifted onto a high perch across the street for a better view said he saw everything in the sniper's nest, indicating just one shooter and running to a police officer immediately to report what he'd seen. A construction worker named Howard Brennan, who had a perfect view of the sniper's nest, described a man fitting Oswald's description to a T and even described his lack of expression before the shooting and his self-satisfied smirk after. Conspiracist writers relentlessly attempt to discredit Brennan, 
because he didn't express absolute certainty while later picking Oswald out of a lineup. But he did pick him, and later he explained his hesitance to express certainty as a product of fear, since he was having second thoughts about becoming a principal witness against the president's assassin, thinking it could put a target on him if there really were some conspiracy, as some were already saying. Conspiracist authors like Jim Mars and Mark Lane, one of the earliest and most vociferous conspiracy peddlers, bring up Brennan's poor eyesight to discredit him, saying he was nearsighted and thus could not have seen all the details he claimed. In fact, though, Brennan was farsighted. After the assassination, his eyesight was damaged in a sandblasting injury, but at the time of the assassination, he was actually peculiarly suited to discern the specific details he described from a distance. Regardless of all this testimony from outside the depository, though, the statements of other book depository employees clear everything up. His fellow workers saw him on the sixth floor, lurking near the windows that looked out on the plaza. At about 11.45 a.m., everyone took their lunch, intending to go down and watch the passing motorcade, and several remembered Oswald staying behind. One co-worker even came back to get some cigarettes he had left on that floor and saw Oswald near the sniper's nest window and asked him if he was coming down for lunch. Oswald said he was not. Another employee came to the sixth floor to see where others were gathering and found it empty, but he did notice the high stacks of books in front of the southeast corner window. He ate his lunch quickly at a different window and then left to find others who were watching the motorcade, joining two friends at a fifth floor window just below the sniper's nest. All three, Harold Norman, Junior Jarman, and Bonnie Ray Williams, are critical witnesses, for they heard exactly three rifle shots coming from directly overhead, and they were even seen by some witnesses on the street leaning out their window and straining to see the window above them. Much has been made of the supposed goings-on at the grassy knoll further down the motorcade route from the depository, but if we look closely at the reasons for suspecting a shooter was there, it starts to look entirely like a red herring. Remember that all the physical evidence and the preponderance of witness testimony indicate just three shots were fired and all from the depository. We've also established that echo patterns in Dealey Plaza confused the origin of sounds. Therefore, it is unsurprising that a couple police officers, not 50 as some unreliable witness testimony claimed, went first to the grassy knoll to search for a gunman, and that they very quickly discerned there was nothing there. Being urged by most witnesses to search the depository, that building quickly became the focus of their search. As with much conspiracy speculation, claims involving the grassy knoll often rely on mistaken witness statements, like that of a woman, Julia Ann Mercer, who was stuck in her car during the motorcade's passage and said she saw a man taking a gun case from a pickup truck and taking it to the grassy knoll. It turned out that the truck was stalled and the men were getting tools from the back in order to fix it. The Dallas police had been monitoring the vehicle as they tried to maintain security on the plaza. 
Much of the speculation about the grassy knoll derives from witness statements that a puff of smoke was seen there during the shooting. But any modern ammunition a second shooter would have been using would be mostly smokeless, and the strong northerly wind that day would not have allowed smoke from a firearm to simply linger in the air. If something smoke-like were momentarily seen above the grassy knoll, it's more likely that it came from the exhaust of an abandoned police motorcycle, as one witness described, or from the nearby steam pipe, which would shortly thereafter scald the hands of a Dallas police officer searching the area. Other than these mistaken reports, there are the unreliable accounts of people seeking attention, like Jean Hill, who was swept into the drama because she took a Polaroid picture of the back of Kennedy's limo at about the time of the third shot. Her early reports show a lack of reliability, getting all kinds of things wrong, like not being clear on the number of people in the car with the president, saying she saw a dog in the car, and claiming things happened that did not. For example, attributing exclamations to the first lady that no one in the vehicle heard her make. Hill's story became more and more lurid as she had further chances to tell it. First, she added that she heard five or six shots, the later ones from an automatic weapon. Then she said police fired back on the shooters, which clearly never happened. Then she said she gave chase to a suspicious man, even though photos taken in the wake of the assassination picture her not having moved from her original spot on the south side of Elm. Her statement was afterward taken by a Times-Herald reporter, but in later retellings she claimed it was some mystery men impersonating Secret Service agents who questioned her. In that initial interview, she emphatically asserted that nothing had drawn her attention during the shooting, but more than 20 years later, she was enthusiastically providing conspiracist author Jim Mars with details about gunmen firing from behind the fence on the grassy knoll to explain why her later claims don't line up with the testimony she gave to the Warren Commission, she claims that she was coerced to alter her story, even though a stenographer was present and recorded none of the threats and manipulation she describes. On and on it goes with the witness claims about the grassy knoll. A tiny portion of another woman's faded Polaroid is blown up and said to show a mysterious badged man with a rifle, though in fact it just appears to be foliage. A man in a nearby railroad signal tower who had a view behind the fence on the grassy knoll said he saw two men behind the fence, standing apart as if they did not know each other. But then after speaking with conspiracist author Mark Lane, as happened with more than one witness, he changed his story to say he saw a flash of light as though one of the men had fired a gun. In fact, though, he has admitted that he was busy at the time of the assassination, having to work the control panel in his tower, which required him to have his back turned to the entire scene. Fifteen years after the fact, yet more grassy knoll shooter witnesses came forward one claiming to have seen men with CIA IDs there and asserting that he heard bullets flying past his ear. Another says he saw a man in a suit enter the rail yard behind the grassy knoll and pass a rifle to another man who disassembled it. But the problem with these latecomers' claims is that others who were present in those areas did not see them there, 
casting doubt on whether they were there at all, or at least on whether they were where they claimed to have been. This is the same credibility problem that all the grassy knoll claims suffer. There are other witnesses who were present and saw nothing of the sort. There are numerous witnesses confirmed to have been within view of the grassy knoll, who saw no shooters peeking over the fence, and three who were standing just in front of the fence, who certainly would have been aware if a rifle had been fired just behind their heads. And there were police stationed on the railroad overpass for security purposes, who would have been able to spot any gunman firing from that fence in broad daylight. Yet claims about the grassy knoll never cease. One writer, David Lifton, determined to make the grassy knoll idea work despite its problems, fell so deep into his scrutiny of faded photos that he began to see all sorts of strange things, convincing himself that conspirators had somehow managed to build fake trees on the knoll as a kind of hunting blind. He claims they must have built this artificial foliage without anyone on the busy plaza having noticed, and then afterward removed it in the days following the assassination when the entire plaza was an active crime scene, again without anyone seeing them. And more than that, in the shapes and shadows of photo enhancements he made himself, he believed he could make out men in those fake trees, wearing headsets and spiked Imperial Prussian helmets, using periscopes and manning machine gun emplacements. In fact, he was pretty sure that he recognized General Douglas MacArthur somewhere among those black and white blotches. To illustrate the absurdity of the notion that General MacArthur was hiding in fake trees on the grassy knoll to oversee Kennedy's assassination that day, it's helpful to know that there was much mutual respect and admiration between the two, who had both served in the Pacific Theater during World War II. At the time, MacArthur was 82 and frail, ailing from cirrhosis, which would take his life in less than a year. Kennedy had actually already made plans for MacArthur's state funeral. Upon hearing the news about the assassination later that day, MacArthur sent Jackie Kennedy a powerful telegram, which reads, quote, I realize the utter futility of words at such a time, but the world of civilization shares the poignancy of this monumental tragedy. As a former comrade-in-arms, his death kills something within me." End quote. Unfortunately, it's quite typical of conspiracy speculators to not consider the human side of their claims, to toss out connections and spew ill-considered allegations, just hoping something sticks, never really considering that the names they throw out belong to actual people with rich lives and relationships and feelings. The last, and to some, most important element to consider in this forensic mess, so relentlessly obfuscated by conspiracy speculation over the years, is that of the single bullet, dubbed the quote-unquote magic bullet by doubters, that was determined to have entered Kennedy's back, exited his neck, and then caused multiple wounds in Governor Connolly, thereafter remaining intact and ending up in the governor's hospital gurney. There is, of course, much to be said about the actions and statements of the doctors who treated Kennedy at Parkland, and the taking of his body out of Dallas on Air Force One, and the results of his autopsy at Bethesda, 
and the conspiracy narratives that have been spun around these events. In fact, there is so much that I will be releasing a patron exclusive on the topic. To conclude this episode, let us look only at the so-called magic bullet trajectory. Using the visible reactions of Kennedy and Connolly on the Zapruder film to determine when they were struck, the Warren Commission and the House Select Committee encountered a timing problem. It appeared to them, looking at Kennedy's arm movement and a later change in Connolly's facial expression when he opens his mouth widely, a moment in the Zapruder film that Connolly himself identifies as when he was shot, that there was too long between their reactions. They both tried to explain this away by saying Connolly simply had a delayed reaction, but Connolly himself said he instantly felt the bullet's impact. This discrepancy, which conspiracy speculators take as proof they had been struck by different bullets, has since been resolved by expert modern enhancements of the Zapruder film in the 1990s. It can now clearly be seen that between frames 224 and 227, Kennedy assumed Thorburn's position, a neurological reaction to spinal injury, as the bullet passed near his sixth vertebra, and Connolly nearly simultaneously changes his posture. His lapel even can be seen to flip up in the same spot where there was later seen a bullet hole in his shirt. The moment he picked as when he was hit, when he opens his mouth widely, was more likely a reaction to his first attempt to take a breath after being shot, when his lung collapsed. With the timing problem resolved, there is the further question of the bullet's path through Connolly's chest and his right wrist and then into his thigh. The famous claim of those who mockingly call it a magic bullet is that it would have had to make impossible turns in midair to make all of Connolly's injuries. There is no surprising refutation here. That's just simply untrue. Computer recreations of the Zapruder film have demonstrated that Connolly was in a perfect position for the bullet to take its path, turned in his seat to search for the source of the first gunshot he had heard. Fired downward from the depository's sixth floor, as recreations proved it must have been, the bullet passed through Kennedy and entered Connolly's back, changed course slightly within his body when it struck his rib, exited below his right nipple, then passed through his wrist, which was in front of him holding his hat, and entered his thigh only a short way. The path of the bullet can even be discerned in the Zapruder film when one sees the movement of his hat at the moment his wrist is struck. Some have claimed the bullet later found in his gurney was too quote-unquote pristine and must have been planted, but it was a full metal jacket round designed to pass through its target as it did, and it was slightly damaged. The doctor treating Connolly at Parkland immediately suspected the bullet must have survived intact when he saw how shallow the wound on his thigh was, and he even suggested Connolly's belongings be searched to find it. Lastly, anyone who watched the film JFK knows that much has been made of the motion of Kennedy's head when he was struck by the last shot. Back and to the left, echoes in our minds. 
having even become a darkly humorous meme, parodied in Seinfeld. Conspiracists claim the head's backward movement demonstrates that he was not shot from behind, but from in front, from the grassy knoll. However, again, conspiracy proponents are just talking out of their asses here, pretending to be experts on the human body's reaction to gunshot wounds. Actually, doctors with expertise in gunshot wounds say that every person reacts differently depending on numerous factors. Some of the factors identified by experts for Kennedy's backward movement include a neuromuscular spasm triggered by the destruction of his cortex, causing his back and neck to stiffen, a reflex heightened by his tightly strapped-on back brace, which prevented him from falling forward. Another factor is the so-called jet effect, cited by Nobel Prize winner Luis Alvarez, who observed that the explosive force of his massive exit wound on the right front side of his head may have actually thrust him back in the opposite direction. Regardless, though, if conspiracists will only believe the shot came from behind if there is a forward motion, they should be satisfied by the fact that enhancements of the Zapruder film indeed show him jerking a couple inches forward before his motion back and to the left. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Join me next time as I continue to explore and explode this massive conspiracy myth. I promise the next episode won't be so bogged down in forensics. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Diane, Robert, Evelyn, Joe E., Devlin, Jessica, Fred, Robin, Mateo, Seth the Writing Spook, Emily, Katie, Elizabeth, Terry, Isabella, Rebecca, Don, Eunice, Juliet, Antonios, Jonathan, and Joshua. I appreciate you gathering here in support for me, even as others try to shoot me down. Some music on this episode is copyright Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel and from Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. You can support the show by pledging on Patreon or on PayPal. Find those links in the show notes. Until next time, remember, if it's this difficult to fight misinformation and determine what really happened at a historic event in the 1960s in front of hundreds of witnesses with tons of preserved evidence, think about the difficulty of discerning the truth about highly disputed events much further back in history.